On a warm June evening in 1951, Percy L. Julian and his wife, Anna Roselle, were sitting out on their back porch enjoying the late-night Chicago air. It had been a stressful time for the Julian family, as they had recently moved so Percy Julian could start his own company, synthesizing chemicals that he had helped create years ago. Though the night was quiet, Anna Roselle couldn't help but feel tense. They were the only African-American family in the neighborhood, and everyone knew that. The stairs burned into her back when she went shopping, or when Julian came in and out of the house. It didn't feel right, and she certainly didn't feel safe. Percy put a hand on Anna Roselle's arm in a reassuring way. She tried to smile at him, but she could feel the fear squeezing into a knot in her stomach. Something was not right. The night air was too still around them. Percy was about to say something, but paused as the stench of smoke filled the air. Before either one of them could react, there was a loud boom and a flash of blinding light and scorching heat, knocking them forward off the porch. Percy squinted and through the flames could see his children screaming and running toward him. The house was slowly burning as metal twisted and glass shattered from the heat. Someone clearly did not want the famous chemist living here. Brains of the people are more interesting than the looks, I think. Electric power is everywhere present in a limited point of view. Jane, if you really want something and you work hard and you take advantage of opportunity and you never give up, You're listening to Human Angle, a podcast that focuses on the hidden lives of scientists, asking what makes them human. I'm your co-host, Matthew Dale, here with my other co-host, Kenna Castleberry. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you to all of our listeners out there. We're grateful for your support and appreciation of our podcast. For our new listeners, you can find our podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. If you like today's episode, be sure to like it and share it with your friends. So, so this episode, we're telling, we're telling the story of Percy L. Julian, an American research chemist who created, who created the methods to synthesize drugs from plant compounds. His work laid the foundation for the steroid drugs, for the steroid drug industry's production of cortisone and birth control pills. And for all this, he was the first African-American chemist inducted into the National Academy of Sciences. Our main research for this podcast came from several articles written about Julian. Julian's life history is full of adversity and triumph, and we're very glad to be able to share it with the rest of you. We're hoping in telling his story that we do his work justice. And with all that said, let's get started. So Percy LaVon Julian was born in Montgomery. Montgomery, Alabama, on the 11th of April, 1899, to James Sumner and Elizabeth uh, Lena Julian. Both his parents were graduates of what, what was to be the Alabama State University. So his father, James, whose, whose own father had been a slave, was employed as a clerk in the railway service of the United States Post Office, while his mother, Elizabeth, worked as a school teacher. Percy Julian grew up in the time of Jim Crow, and that racist legal regime in the southern United States. Among his childhood memories was finding a lynch man hung from a tree whilst 
while walking into the woods near his home. At the time when access to an education beyond the eighth grade was extremely rare for African-Americans, Julian's parents made an effort to steer all of their children towards higher education. He studied until the eighth grade, but he couldn't finish his high school education. So he graduated from an all-black school inadequately prepared for college. But undeterred, he applied to DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, where he had to take additional evening classes to bring himself up with his classmates since he hadn't completed high school. So Junian wasn't allowed to live in the college dorms or even eat meals there. So he had to find his own accommodation, which took him days because uh, Junian struggled to find an establishment where he could actually eat. And to compound all of this, he also had to work uh, to pay for his college expenses. Uh, He managed to eventually find work firing the furnace, waiting tables and doing other odd jobs in a fraternity house. In return, he was allowed to sleep in the attic and eat at the house. So Julian was elected to Phi Beta Kappa and graduated with a BA degree in 1920 as valedictorian of his class. However, his chosen path of chemistry would prove to be a tricky one. With no one encouraging him to continue his education, based on the lack of future job opportunities, Julian found a position as instructor in chemistry at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. In 1923, he managed to receive an Austin Fellowship in Chemistry, which which allowed him to attend Harvard University to, to obtain his MS. However, worried that white students would resent being taught by an African-American, Harvard decided to withdraw his teaching assistantship, basically making it impossible for him to complete his PhD at Harvard. Wow. This is, yeah, this is just going to be, I think, an hour of like us <laughs> responding to the other, just saying, wow, oh my God, and trying to find more and more adjectives or intensifies to express exactly express our horror at this and it just I guess it just shows like how incredible he is as a person to keep going even though the entire system of the U.S. is so racist and against him and he's just like I don't care like I'm just gonna keep going yeah yeah. it it definitely it speaks to his character it speaks so much to his character it does for sure So in the succeeding years, he served on the staff of predominantly black institutions, first at West Virginia State College, and then in 1928 as head of the Department of Chemistry at Howard University, Washington, D.C. Kind of notice how much he seems to have had to move around as well, just to find a job in his field. Although, like, granted, I feel like an African-American chemistry teacher would be kind of in higher demand for, like, black institutions at this time. However, like because of the whole separate but equal act with like education in the States, like I feel like he still wouldn't have gotten paid very well or like there would be like very little funding for African-American colleges. So he probably just had to keep moving to find like decent pay. So even something that ostensibly seems like would work in his favor actually doesn't. Right, right, exactly. In 1929, uh, Junior received a Rockefeller Foundation grant and the chance to earn his doctorate in chemistry. He elected to study natural products chemistry with Ernst Spath. I think so. My apologies to the people of Austria <laughs> and the German-speaking people for that at the University of Vienna. Wait, he traveled to Vienna as well? Yeah, he's one of the first African-American scientists to travel abroad during this time. And yeah, was able to get enough money or, you know, get like a scholarship or something to study in Vienna. And he, and he received his PhD in 1931. 
So I can't, that's, what's that, two years he, t- he took to get his PhD? I think so. I think also because, like, he already was pretty much prepared to get it, maybe. Or, like, clearly he's very, very smart. Clearly he didn't need to take as long as normal people. But, yeah, absolutely, yeah. that is really interesting. Like, yeah, I guess it's previous experience at Harvard. Or lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had the experience to do it. They just wasn't allowed to do it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, his expertise they developed but was not able to actually use. But whilst at the much better University of Vienna, he managed to find much more freedom from the racial discrimination that stifled him in the States. Uh, He was able to freely participate in intellectual social gatherings, even went to the opera and just had a much better time being accepted by his peers. So yeah, it's a nice little respite that he deserved. Seriously. Even if he did have to suffer with the opera. (laughs) Clearly, Matthew is not a fan of the opera. (laughs) But So after returning from Vienna, Julian taught for one year at Howard University. At Howard, in part due to his position as a department head, Julian uh, was caught up in university politics, setting off an embarrassing chain of events. Julian goaded white professor of chemistry, Jacob Shohan, who had a PhD from Harvard, funny enough. Mm. into resigning because i guess white people still had wreath and skins back then well i don't and like in my research it wasn't clear why the university like president either requested julian to try to get the guy to resign or like wanted the guy to resign in the first place but this this sounds yeah i'm kind of interested to see the source of this right it sounds really underhanded and like i'm wondering too if maybe the reason this is on like this is archival research is because maybe the media mixed it up and maybe it was actually the president himself who forced the guy to resign and then Mm. put it all on julian because julian made a comment once right or or because julian was african-american like we don't actually know but it was just one of those things where i was reading this and i was like this doesn't really sound like julian would do something like this but at the same time like Mm. we don't actually know what happened yeah, I mean, I yeah, it seemed it, I I not not having evaluated the evidence myself, but I would like guess that he probably just made a comment and that that was used as the flimsiest of pretexts to kind of shift the blame onto probably him. that'd be my guess too, or like maybe he was you know one of the only African Americans on staff, and so they thought you know it's still the racism period, so why don't we just blame this on this person? Yeah, just terrible. But yeah, it was just, it was really weird to read in the research. And then in uh, late May 1932, Shohan retaliated by releasing to the local African-American newspaper the letters Julian had written to him from Vienna. The letters described a variety of subjects from wine, pretty Viennese women, music and dancers, to chemical experiments and plans for the new chemical building. In the letters, he spoke with familiarity and with some derision of specific members of the Howard University faculty. Terming one well-known dean as an ass. Ooh, that definitely the, won't help your reputation. Ugh. And then another scandal was brought up as Julian fired uh, his lab assistant, Robert Thompson. In rage, Thompson sued Julian for having a sexual affair with his wife, Anne Thompson. Julian then countersued, and Thompson published Julian's other set of letters from Vienna, written to Thompson himself in the newspaper. Uh, these letters contained more insults against Howard University staff. So throughout the summer of 1932, the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper published all of Julian's letters. 
Eventually, the scandal and accompanying pressure forced Junior to resign. And he unfortunately lost the position and everything he had worked for so far. It also just strikes me how petty some of this is. Like, you're forcing someone to resign because he called you an ass once. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, it's like yeah. sitting through his like, Twitter drama. Honestly. Right, or like firing your lab assistant and then he's like, well, you had an affair with my wife. We don't yeah. know if that actually happened. but Oh, okay. It did strike me as... It did strike me as a bit suspect, especially it plays into that whole racist, um, racist mm-hmm. kind of mythology of black man steal black steal white woman. Yeah, I was thinking that too as well because I don't. It didn't ever say if Robert Thompson, his lab assistant, was white, and okay. like I don't. I would suspect probably not. Just knowing the racism back then, they probably wouldn't mm-hmm. have had a white student under a black lab professor. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, okay. again, we have no idea. So after all this, Blanchard offered Julian a position to teach organic chemistry at DePaul University in 1932. Julian then helped Joseph Peichel, a fellow student at the University of Vienna, to come to the United States to work with him at DePaul. In 1935, Julian and Peichel completed the total synthesis of physotignine and confirmed its structural formula. Robert Robson had been the first to publish a synthesis of physotignine. But Julian noticed that the melting point of Robertson's end product was wrong, indicating they had not created it. So when Julian completed his synthesis, the melting point matched the correct one for natural physosamine from the calabar bean. Now you may be wondering, what is physostigmine? It's a highly toxic alkaloid that has been used to treat, out of all things, glaucoma. Physostigmine eases the constriction of outflow channels from the eye's aqueous humor to relieve high pressure there, which, if left untreated, damages the retina and eventually causes blindness. So it pretty much just helps get blood out of the eye to relieve the pressure in the eye, which is just, kind of cool. Just the eye? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at okay. least for treating glaucoma, which, like, I wouldn't have mm. suspected something like a calabar bean to have helped glaucoma, but weirder things have happened. <laughs> Yeah. So the work that Julian did to find physostigmine established Julian's reputation as a world-renowned chemist at the age of 36. That's that's a very rapid rise there from hounded out of your university to world-renowned chemist. Despite his accomplishments as a recognized and published researcher, Percy Julian was denied a faculty position at DePaul University. Frustrated in his efforts to gain an academic post, Julian decided to turn to industry. DuPont had offered a job to fellow chemist and friend Joseph Peichel, but declined to hire Julian despite his superlative qualifications as an organic chemist, apologizing that they were, quote, unaware that he was a Negro, end quote. Julian next applied for a job at the Institute of Paper Chemistry, IPC, in Appleton, Wisconsin. However, Appleton was a sundown town, which means that they forbid African-Americans from staying overnight, stating directly, quote, no Negro should be bed or boarded overnight in Appleton, end quote. So like for that one, he couldn't even apply for the job because he couldn't even stay in the literal town. I mean, this is this is not that different from his university where he had to, where he struggled to find a place where he could eat. I know. It just, yeah. it makes me astounded because these are things that they don't teach you in American history or like laws about like 
African-American people not being able to stay in a town or, you know, scientists like this who have had to have so much adversity thrown against them that they've had to fight through to get successful. So it's just one of those things like researching Julian and like learning more about his history. That's made me really, really come to respect him and just want people to learn more about him. There was, however, good news for Julian as on December 24th, 1935, he married Anna Roselle, who got her PhD in sociology in 1937 from the University of Pennsylvania. Anna Roselle herself was the first African-American woman to receive this PhD in sociology. They had two children, Percy LaVon Julian Jr., who became a noted civil rights lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin, and Faith Roselle Julian who still resides in their Oak Park home and often makes inspirational speeches about her father and his contributions to science. In 1936, Julian was about to make another important discovery. During this time, researchers in many countries were seeking innovative and cost-effective ways to synthesize steroids, including cortisone and the sex hormones. German chemists discovered that the steroid Stigmasterol, which Julian had obtained as a byproduct of the physostigmine synthesis, but was also attainable from soybeans, could be used in the synthesis of certain sex hormones, including progesterone, which is a female sex hormone that's important in helping pregnant women avoid miscarriages. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. In pursuit of this lead, in 1936, Julian wrote to the Glidden Company in Chicago, requesting samples of their soybean oil. He had joined the search for synthesizing these steroids, in part because his wife, Anna Roselle, was suffering with infertility. Through a series of events, he wound up being hired by Glidden instead as their director of research in the soya division, where he set about figuring out ways to make new products from soybeans. Over the next 18 years, The results of his soybean protein research produced numerous patents and successful products for Glidden, including an extracted type of soy protein that was used by the U.S. Navy to produce aerofoam. This was a foam-like substance that was used to put out oil and gas fires and was highly used during World (laughs) War II. Something I just noticed quickly was how the whole motivation of this was through his wife suffering with infertility. I thought that was just a nice reminder of the personal kind of motivations and endeavors that fuel a lot of scientific discoveries. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things like we don't see a lot with scientists is maybe their personal motivations to find certain things or like work hard. And like in Julian's case, that is really nice to know, like his wife had this problem and he really wanted to help her. And that was why he went into this line of work. Julian's research at Glidden changed direction in 1940 when he began work on synthesizing progesterone estrogen, and testosterone from the plant sterols stigmasterol and cytosterol, isolated from soybean oil by a foam technique he had invented and patented. Was that related to the popularly used aerofoam or? I think so. (laughs) I tried to look more into it and like because steroids are very what do I want to say like they're very easy now to mass produce it's hard to figure out how specifically they're they were being produced back then but i would suspect so i would suspect like these are byproducts from creating that foam or at least Mm -hmm. like a, a similar foam at the time clinicians were discovering many uses for the newly discovered hormones like progesterone or testosterone however only minute quantities could be extracted from hundreds of pounds of the spinal cords of animals which that kind of makes me think of like 
insulin when they were first using pig liver for insulin and like it was mm-hmm. so hard to extract that much insulin and then when yeah. it got mass produced it was a lot easier yeah it reminds me of actually penis the, when they first purified penicillin yeah, yeah i think i exactly. doing the first experiments and uh they couldn't get the proof that it works in the first experiment because they couldn't extract enough penicillin and the guy just died, like relapsed and died basically from it exactly yeah. so yeah it's it's just interesting like how we've used animal organs in the past and now we've we've moved more to like synthesis of like you know like synthetic chemicals yeah. and it, it makes it a lot easier in 1940 julian was able to produce a hundred pounds of mixed soybean sterols daily which had a value of $10,000 or $86,000 today as sex hormones. The soy stigmasterol was easily converted into commercial quantities of the female hormone progesterone. And the first compound of progesterone he made was valued at $63,500, which is $543,000 today. So a lot of money. Sorry, just the way you said first pound as well made it sound like illegal, like cocaine or something. (laughs) (laughs) I I very much appreciate that (laughs) turn of phrase there. (laughs) No problem. I didn't even realize I was doing it. But yeah, that kind of makes (laughs) sense now of like the first pound of this thing. (laughs) Like, are they, do they have the first pound of Walter White's new milk? (laughs) I was just thinking that actually. So, I mean, at least he made a really good profit off of it, which is kind of cool. Julian and his coworkers obtained patents for Glidden glidden on key processes for the preparation of progesterone and testosterone from soybean plant sterols. And Julian's work actually helped to save many, many lives, which is really cool. On April 13, 1949, rheumatologist Philip Hench at the Mayo Clinic announced the dramatic effectiveness of cortisone in treating rheumatoid arthritis. The cortisone being produced was expensive and wasn't affordable for patients. On September 30, 1949, Julian announced an improvement in the process of producing cortisone. This eliminated the need to use osmium tetroxide, which was a rare and expensive chemical. Julian helped Glidden make millions off of this process and tried to find other similar compounds that could be effective in medicine. I would think he was specifically looking for painkillers as well for arthritis, which was kind of cool. In 1953, Glidden decided to leave the steroid business, which had been relatively unprofitable over the years despite Julian's innovative work. That's really weird because like he just made them like millions, but maybe it was just too expensive or maybe they wanted to branch out. It could just be that the steroid business during this time had way too much competition. Well, I guess that they're expensive to make and there's not much of a market for it. Right. And I, oh, I actually, I think the issue is rheumatoid arthritis because it's a fairly rare disease. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like there's not as much demand either. Yeah. So it's a problem with like antibiotics. So on December 1st, 1953, on December 1st, 1953, Julian left Glidden after 18 years, giving up a salary of nearly 50000 a year, equivalent to $480,000 in 2019, to found his own company, Julian Laboratories, Inc., taking over the small concrete block building of Suburban Chemical Company in Franklin Park, Illinois. Around 1950, Julian moved his family to the Chicago suburb of Oak Park, becoming the first African-American family to reside there. Although some residents welcomed them into the community, there was also opposition. Sorry, were you going to say something? 
I just said, oh boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is not going to be pleasant. Foreshadow. Mm-hmm. Like foreshadow intensifies there. Yeah. Before they even moved in on Thanksgiving Day 1950, their home was firebombed. Later, after they moved in, the house was attacked with dynamite on the 12th of June 1951. The attacks galvanized the community, and a community group was formed to support the Julians. Julian's son later recounted that during these times, he and his father often kept watch over the family's property by sitting in a tree with a shotgun. Jesus. I know. Yeah, it basically just went through multiple terrorist attacks. Yeah, and clearly, like, even though Julian had already encountered so many, like, racist comments and, like, a past of adversity, it gets even worse with his family when he tries to do something on his own. In 1953, Julian founded his own research firm, Julian Laboratories, Inc. He brought many of the, his best chemists, including African Americans and women, from Glidden to his own company. To compete against Syntex, another chemical company, he would have to use the same Mexican yam obtained from the Mexican Barbasco trade as his starting material. Julian used his own money and borrowed from friends to build a processing plant in Mexico but he could not get a permit from the government to harvest the yams. Abraham Zlotnik, a former Jewish University Vienna classmate, whom Julian had helped escape from the Holocaust, led a search to find a new source of the yam in Guatemala for the company. Wait, like, how did, I want to hear more about this. How did, he, how did he help him escape from the Holocaust? I know. So, like, I tried to look more into that, but there isn't that much, much research about how Julian helped him escape. And, like, I find that really interesting because the Holocaust did also target African-Americans as well because they Mm -hmm. weren't part of the Aryan race. It's just not something that is as widely known because there weren't as many African-Americans living in Germany. Yeah. So I'm, like, I'm always interested in, like, that idea of, like, him helping this guy escape the Holocaust when he himself could have easily been targeted as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, but it's just really interesting to think about. So I guess it's the importance of intersectional solidarity there. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, being human and helping out your fellow human and just not thinking about race or, you know, background or anything like that. Julian wasn't satisfied with the yam production in Guatemala and went to the Supreme Court to challenge Syntex by saying that they had a monopoly over the Mexican yam production. While the Supreme Court didn't do anything decisive, they promised to monitor the situation. Within five years, large American multinational pharmaceutical companies had acquired all six producers of the steroid intermediates in Mexico, four of which had been Mexican-owned. Julian had stiff competition with these companies, but still found ways to win. Julian Laboratory chemists found a way to quadruple the yield on a production on which they were barely breaking even. Julian had reduced the price of the steroid product from $4,000 per kilogram to $400 per kilogram, making it way more affordable for patients. That's huge. Yeah, wow. And clearly it worked because he sold his company in 1961 and became a millionaire, which is a feat for few African-Americans at the time and even before him. And I think that's something that we should celebrate because like, I don't really know any African-American millionaires during this time or even before this. So it's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, especially considering how much a million was back then. And plus, this is the 1960s. So now we're going to get into the civil rights movement. And so it's just really interesting to think about how, like, Julian is 
succeeding in a system that's built to work against him. So that's kind of cool. It's really, it does make you really admire him. Absolutely. So after Julian became a millionaire, he then established a nonprofit organization by the name of the Julian Research Institute, which he ran the rest of his life. In 1973, Julian was inducted into the National Academy of Sciences. And on April 19, 1975, Julian died from liver cancer at the age of 76. I mean, at least he left a great legacy. Yeah. I was going to say, at least he got, he got to see himself be, get some kind of recognition eventually with the induction. Exactly. Like, I think that's awesome that, like, other people were able to see his work, too, in a sense, or, or like, give him the credit for the work he deserves. While not only a successful chemist, he was also widely recognized as a steadfast advocate for human rights. Julian continued his private research studies and served as a consultant to major pharmaceutical companies until his death. Throughout his life, he was socially active in groups seeking to advance conditions for African Americans helping to found the Legal Defense and Education Fund of Chicago, and serving on the boards of several other organizations and universities. A NOVA documentary about Julian was aired on PBS in 2007 called Forgotten Genius. Approximately 60 of Julian's family members, friends, and work associates were interviewed for the docudrama. According to University of Illinois historian James Anderson, in the film, quote, his story is a story of great accomplishment, of heroic efforts and overcoming tremendous odds. A story about who we are and what we stand for and the challenges that have been there and the challenges that are still with us, end quote. That's a really good quote about Julian's life, just as far as like, he made a way bigger impact on society than we give him credit for. No, I was just gonna say, and there's still challenges that we need to fix today. Like, it's not like racism is fully over. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's 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 all true. <laughs> yeah. Would you say even with that, he has the recognition you think he deserves? I don't think so, to be honest, because like I didn't know who he was before mm. I researched him. I had heard of him before, but only like a name mentioned in passing. It wasn't like I fully knew his legacy. And yeah. I think like that's one of the things that we should be celebrating, especially during the time of like the Black Lives Matter movement and whatnot, is just yeah. people like Julian who were able to seriously work against a society that was really really trying to fight mm -hmm. them and be successful and then make a name for themselves mm -hmm. and i think they deserve more recognition for that having having those role models is essential so yeah he's definitely one of those scientists that i'm gonna look back on and be like wow like i really respect your story and i really hope people understand and like learn more about it yeah, I'm certainly, I'm certainly glad to have done this script just to learn about him. Same. That is it for the Percy L. Julian episode. Please let us know your thoughts and reach out on social media. Stay tuned for our next episode covering famous science writer Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park, which has become an instant classic and changed the way science has been communicated since the 1980s. I believe we'll also have a special guest, maybe? Oh, yes, we will have a special guest, a very, very, very avid Michael Crichton fan. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs>